Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Wherever you find us, whether it's a video on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. You can also find us on major social media platforms where I give you a heads up about upcoming shows and which date and time they will be aired. If you go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, you can find links to the shows, MP3 files which you can download, or links to your favorite platform like iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and all other major sources. You can find information for upcoming and past talk show appearances as well as new book projects at MarlenePardo.com. You can also purchase books and merchandise there. And you can visit my author page on Amazon at Marlene Pardo Pelliser. Due to popular demand, I'm narrating my True Believer stories that have collected throughout the years in a new series called Supernatural Storytime. You can find links at SupernaturalStoryTime.com. If you are into classic horror, ghosts, and adventure stories, I narrate some of those at Nightshade Diary. And you can find links at NightshadeDiary.com. If you would like to read noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit the Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I do want to thank you all for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural, and today's episode is about a phenomena called hauntings at railroads, railroad crossings, and other ghostly activity that takes place around railroads. Uh, I myself, I live less than a quarter mile from a railroad crossing. And right now, for those of you who are actually viewing this versus the podcast, I'm showing pictures of where the railroad crossing things are left there. So much so as in offerings, weird stuff. And that's a whole other thing about why they do that. And uh, even the owner that has a property adjacent to the railroad tracks that I live in an agricultural area has even left signs, signs out there saying, please stop doing this. But anyway, one of the most interesting thing about railroads is that railroad tracks usually preceded the growth of towns, cities, etc. This is how areas developed economically and sometimes they've been there for a very very long time and as far as ghostly happenings are concerned uh, they were witness to a lot of sometimes violence sickness depending on the workers that uh, were employed there sometimes under very horrible conditions uh, for example in the 1800s construction crews uh, they cut through mountains rivers uh, they twisted around bends and basically drove straight through towns and cities to build railroad lines that swept across the land. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard about how the railroad barons would sometimes basically kick people off their land if they needed to bring their railroad through that area. On May 10th, 1869, a seminal moment in railroad history, a golden spike was pounded into the final tie to officially commemorate the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, railroads would connect states and nations. Um, for example, the famous Chisholm Trail that runs out of Texas. That was made because this was where they would drive cattle up to all these different train depots to load the cattle to take them back east. So it helped a great deal economically as far as expanding business but all of that would come at a cost now something that remains embedded in our collective psyche is the railroad ghosts now haunted railroads lore runs the full line of weird paranormal activity from spooky but well documented either levitating lights or orbs uh, also phenomenon of apparitions of people appearing in train engines and in the cars also, you hear tales of wandering souls, long-dead railroad engineers, and even accounts of the trains themselves or the locomotives rolling on the tracks, sometimes tracks that are not even there any longer. 
Now, the first one that we're going to look at is the Abraham Lincoln's funeral train. Now, on a particularly melancholy morning of April 19, 1865, Abraham Lincoln's funeral train drifted out of a Washington, D.C. depot to visit hundreds of thousands of grief-stricken citizens in 400 communities who had lined up to pay tribute to the assassinated president. Now, legend has it, though, that just because you were born more than a century too late for having witnessed that funeral train, it doesn't mean you're too late to see its specter. The ghost of this funeral train is said to retrace its route annually on the anniversary of its inaugural trip. Some say that if you're out along the rail lines that were once part of the funeral train's itinerary, uh, which went through several mid-Atlantic and Midwestern states, you might see a black steam engine with fire belching from its smokestack as it glides eerily down the line. Now, in case there's any doubt that what you're witnessing is an actual ghostly locomotive, uh, and instead of some historical reenactment, witnesses say, if you look through the window, you can see the president's coffin is laid out, and an ever-vigilant group of Union soldiers, also described as ghosts, and others actually seem as skeletons keep watch over the president's coffin. Now, another ghost story has to do with a locomotive that actually received a recognition when they issued a stamp, a Canadian stamp in 2014. It was a St. Louis ghost train stamp. Now, the stamp celebrates a ghostly railroad tale that's been creeping out of the small quaint village of St. Louis in Saskatchewan for decades. The witnesses say that eerie lights often dance along a stretch of railroad tracks outside of town. Some say that there's a white light and a red light. They believe that the white light represents the headlamp of a train, while the red light looks like a light that used to flash from the back of a caboose. Believers say that the lights are either from a ghost train that was part of a deadly train robbery or the ghost of a conductor who died in a horrible work accident along the section of track. Debunkers have other reasons for the phenomena. Mainly, they say that the phenomena is nothing more than a combination of automobile headlights and overactive imaginations. But the sightings continue and they haven't been solved and therefore they were immortalized in that stamp collection uh, celebrating uh, what might be just an urban myth, but quite an interesting one. Now, another very, very famous haunted railroad crossing are the railroad tracks at San Antonio, Texas. Uh, if you go right outside of San Antonio, there's an area near a place called the San Juan Mission, and you go to the intersection of Villa Main and Shane Roads, and you're going to come to a very unremarkable stretch of railroad tracks cutting through there. Now, you may seem like a very ordinary intersection, kind of something you see in almost any town or city you go to. But a lot of people that live in this place say that these railway tracks are very, very haunted. Uh, as with most haunted places, the location itself has its own grim origin and a history bathed in suffering, tragedy, and blood. It was here that according to the lore in the 1930s or 40s, there was supposedly a horrific accident. It is said that a busload of school children were making its way across the intersection when the bus stalled right there on the tracks just as the train was speeding along towards them. The driver apparently did all he could to save as many of the kids as possible. But since this is now a haunted place and the story is key to it all, you probably see where this is going. The barreling train was unable to stop in time and collided with a school bus, shearing it completely in half and reducing it to wreckage, killing 10 of the children, as well as the bus driver himself. The version of the tragedy changes slightly depending on who you ask. For instance, in one version, the bus driver was a nun, and everyone was killed except her, when she was miraculously thrown from the catastrophe without a scratch on her. But in every version, we have a horrible accident involving the death of innocent children. Now, the result of this is that the intersection and that stretch of railway tracks is thought to somehow tether the spirits of these kids to it, and that they've stayed there in order to make sure that no one suffers the same violent fate. 
To this end, it's said that cars parked on the tracks will inexplicably roll forward on their own as of being pushed. And it's not uncommon for people to report the disembodied voices of, or apparitions of these lost children. Other weird phenomena reported from here include the appearance of tiny handprints on cars, cars stalling before they can even reach the tracks, ghost lights, and even reports of an actual ghostly train that will come careening down the tracks only to vanish into thin air. There have even been supposedly photos taken of the spectral children, including one taken that purportedly showed the ghost of a child holding a teddy bear standing forlornly by the tracks where she died all of those years ago. Now, this is a story that one witness described to Legends of America of a strange experience that she had on the tracks. One afternoon, I had gone to the railroad tracks with a few friends. After having driven over the tracks a couple of times, we were chatting with some visitors who had already taken a Lincoln Continental over the tracks once. They were a husband and wife and a visitor from Mexico who didn't believe the event, accusing the husband who was driving of making the car roll. So the husband and wife got out, let their Mexican visitor take the wheel for himself. They staged the Lincoln about five yards back from the tracks with the engine shut off. With their visitor in the driver's seat, the car suddenly began to scream and slamming on the brakes. However, he could not stop the car until it completed its crossing of the tracks. He had also tried putting the transmission in park, but it still sped forward. I've never seen anyone so terrified. Once the car finally stopped, he jumped out, still screaming and shouting in Spanish, then demanded that his host take him back to his hotel, stating further that he was leaving and was never coming back. I once went over my 1968 Firebird convertible with a new parakeet in the car. The bird had been chirping happily until we staged the vehicle for the tracks, when suddenly his chirping was completely silenced. It wasn't until we left the area that he began to chirp again. Quite a story. Such phenomena have made the tracks a popular place for macabre curiosity seekers looking to experience something paranormal for themselves, and many report not being disappointed. Indeed, visitors are known to sprinkle baby powder upon their vehicles in order to accentuate the handprints that appear, and accounts of witnessing these prints appear in the powder are numerous. Such stories have been enough to draw droves of people, even up to this day, as well as to gain the attention of various paranormal researchers and the haunted railway tracks have appeared on shows devoted to such things. It's all very spooky to be sure, but of course there are those skeptical of all of this, and there have been many attempts to debunk the tales as a mere local urban legend. The rolling of the vehicles are explained as being the result of a very slight incline which through an optical illusion makes it appear as if it is an actual uphill slope. However, this does little to explain all the other paranormal phenomena allegedly experienced here, and there are plenty of people who believe that this place is truly haunted. One local believer has said of the tracks and the efforts to debunk them the following story. I used to live in Seguin, Texas. I know many dispute the legend of the railroad tracks. However, I was witness to one very indisputable event there in my late teens, early 20s. Personally, I don't think a toe degree declination is enough to push a 3,600 pound car, which is two tons with passengers over those tracks with no starting momentum. But personally, I think the experts are debunking the myth so that people stop coming to the ghost tracks. The area has developed considerably since my visits with a number of nearby residences. When I went, it was countryside near an industrial area. Also, the targeting criminals probably live nearby, kids, teens. If their debunking helps divert unwelcome visitors, more power to them. However, I know the tracksmith is real. Incidentally, I never went over the tracks with the engine running, unlike most who try this. Time frame of my experiences there was mid-1970s to 1981. Whether or not a bus did get struck by a train there, there is something psychic in the area. I personally think the spirits there go further back in history than the use of buses. Was there an orphanage there once? Did someone once stall there in a vehicle after the tracks were laid and got killed? Those are the questions that the bunkers should be researching. So, is there anything to this tale? 
or is it all urban legend and misunderstanding? Well, the following is an account of what is described to be the real original bus crash that took the lives of several students. It took place on December 1st, 1938 in Salt Lake, Utah. And the story that was described as a school bus was heading to Jordan High School through a dense winter storm as a loaded Denver and Rio Grande freight train rolled north towards Salt Lake City, according to the information that was posted on the newspapers of the day. Near the railroad crossing, the driver stopped the bus. He opened the door to look beyond the thick fog, but he didn't see the 80-plus car, the flying ute, the name of the train, approaching at over 50 miles per hour. At 8.43 a.m., the bus pulled slowly forward across the tracks. Upon seeing the bus, the train crew immediately applied the brakes, but the collision was inevitable. The collision claimed the lives of 23 children and the bus driver. The 15 survivors faced a lifetime of serious physical injuries and emotional scars. In the wake of the horrific crash came railroad crossing laws, mechanical crossing arms, and national regulations that are still in place today, including the mandatory requirement for bus drivers to not only stop at railroad crossings, but also to open their door and driver's side window to look and listen for oncoming trains. So, how could this story make its way across the nation from Salt Lake City over to San Antonio? Some think that it made the headlines in the newspapers, including the one in San Antonio. As a matter of fact, it made the headlines all over the country. And perhaps after a while, some people made up the story and it gained momentum and then took on a life of its own. However, there was a real railroad tragedy close to that area of San Antonio. It occurred on March 28, 1920. Uh, there was a train accident outside of San Antonio in a small city called New Bromsville. It was Easter Sunday, and the Smith family were out for a spring drive in their Model T car. They had left their home in New Bromsville to visit family in Seguin. As they were crossing the railroad tracks, they were struck by a train at full speed. The car rolled over and over again as the train dragged it and pulled it to shreds till it eventually came to a stop. A mother, her daughters, and a small child were killed instantly, but the son-in-law, who was driving the car, survived one more day before he eventually passed away from his injuries. Now, sometimes this is how true stories morph into urban legends that take on a life of its own, especially as some of these occurred almost a hundred years ago. Now, it's not only ghosts and apparitions which are seen at railroad crossings, there's also a story of strange creatures. The following is a story related by the late Brad Steiger that occurred in 1964. As a matter of fact, it was May 14th, 1964, and it occurred in Turkey. A gentleman by the name of Ismir Bey and his wife were driving along a road that ran adjacent to a railroad track when they spotted a spinning disc in the sky, described by them as the size of a house. Suddenly it seemed to plummet out of the sky and as the two watched it crash to the ground in a burst of flames. This is certainly one of the few reports of a UFO crashing and to add a bizarre twist, a huge hairy monster was soon seen by the bays as it scrambled out of the wreckage and headed for safety straight towards them. In an effort to protect his wife from whatever fate might befall her at the hands of the monster, Bay flung himself at the beast and was rewarded for his valor by being pounded into unconsciousness. Mrs. Bay reported that the monster then flung her husband in the direction of the railroad tracks and ran off into the nearby woods, but apparently it did not try to harm her. This other story of strange creatures tied into railroad crossings dates to 1972 and defines Ohio. And this happened through a course of two months from July to August of that year. And there were sightings of a hair-covered man-beast with a pronounced muzzle and dressed in rags. Now the local media quickly picked up on the saga, as did the town's police who even opened an official file on defiance very own equivalent of Nessie, the Chupacabra, Bigfoot, all the cryptids that we're so familiar with today. The city was gripped by this terror, and it was not an understatement. Many of the signs of the creature were made around a series of old railroad tracks, 
and usually he was seen late at night. A couple of guys working on the tracks by the name of Ted Davis and Tom Jones had an encounter of the very close kind, a close call one might say. Davis told the local newspaper The Blade, I was connecting an air hose between two cars and was looking down. I saw these huge hairy feet. When I looked up, he was standing there with that big stick over his shoulders. When I started to say something, he took off for the woods. Now the next story comes out of the UK and this has to do with a description of what's called big cats that uh, several people in the UK have cited. This one dates back to July 2009 in Scotland. There was a police dog handler, PC Chris Wallow, spotted a four foot long creature that he believed was one of the big cats that reportedly roamed the UK, was prowling near a railway line. The size of the track was much larger than a domestic cat, and the way it bounced along the railway line discounted as being a dog. Another story of an alien big cat is from 2008 near Puerto Rico's Chemex Railroad. It was described as being bigger than a German Shepherd dog and black in color. Now there's also the matter of Bigfoot seen racing along railroad tracks. And there's another case involving a Bigfoot seen near a railroad. Could there be a reason as to why strange creatures often seem to pop up in the vicinity of railroad tracks? It may seem like a weird question to ask. However, author Marilee Harper, in her 2006 book Mystery Big Cats, describes where there are transitional zones between one area and another, the kind of no man's land traditionally regarded as magical. She added that such liminal zones are there in the landscape, which includes streams, bridges, stiles, gates, and churchyards. These are spots that literally or symbolically are at the point of transition over a boundary. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard about ley lines or as being a meeting place or where they say there's a thinning of the veil. It seems that she's possibly alluding that some of these areas, including railway lines, also serve the same purpose. I'm going to narrate the following, which is a truly creepy story having to do with something that went on around a railroad track. Here we go. My hobby is hiking and urban exploration. It's not the most fruitful of activities living on the outskirts of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but I've managed. So this paired with a particularly uninspiring few weeks made me excited at the prospect of hiking around Breck's Frenchtown Road Conservation Area. Ever heard of it? Yeah, me either. It was a happy little accent that I stumbled across it a while back, but that's a different kind of scary story. I didn't know much about the place except that it's pretty secluded neck of the woods near the town of Greenwald Springs, only a 20-minute drive from my place. All I was expecting to get was some artsy shots of trees and give my Rottweiler Charlie some exercise, but I stumbled across some strange things I think you may be interested in. I'll be the first to say I'm not easily scared. Hell, I've slept under my fair share of highway overpasses back in the day, and I can't really afford to be spooked when prowling around abandoned warehouses for adventure. To be honest, I've probably frightened more people myself by being places I'm not supposed to be in, but I digress. I drove down the excessively windy road, probably a little faster than I should. The houses started off pretty normal, suburban, neat yards, support our troop signs, etc. But about a mile and a half down, the trees started getting a little closer to the road, and the houses turned to dilapidated trailers and empty lots. The further and further down I went, the more the trees seemed to creep closer to the road. Before I knew it, I could no longer see the sky. A canopy of branches thick with leaves and moss hung over me. You can see where it starts to thicken here. Still, I drove on, smiling at Charlie with his head out of the window. This was his favorite kind of walk. I'd driven this way once before, but honestly, I wasn't sober. Not by a long shot. I don't even remember exactly what I was doing. Maybe it was one of those times that I had a little bit too much to drink. Anyway, the truth was that I loved to hike and I've camped out all over rural Louisiana. I've never been unnerved by what I found, or come even close to leaving early. 
Right before the road dead-ended, it narrowed. It was making it impossible to turn around. If another car had been trying to drive the opposite way, we would have had a hell of a time maneuvering around each other. Luckily, there wasn't a car in sight or any more houses. In fact, there was nothing more than the woods and me. Each curve was potentially the end of the line. I wasn't using a GPS, but I knew the road wasn't that long. After nearly four miles, looming up ahead was a small railroad overpass. The bridge was small and really run down. While passing under it, I noticed a few pentagrams and other seemingly arcane symbols. Nothing that really alerted me, though. I used to do stupid shit, too. I can't judge what most likely some high school kids were doing just to rebel. I parked in a small gravel clearing immediately after the bridge. There was some weird graffiti. Ominous, but nothing I hadn't seen before. I have to say, the air was different out there. I'm used to Louisiana's blanketing humidity, but this was different. Not drowsy, but almost like the air around me was as thick as cotton. And believe me, I've been in my fair share of musty places. I can't say I expected it. Anyway, I pushed the apprehension aside. Charlie didn't seem concerned whatsoever, so I figured it was just in my head. I grabbed my bottle of water and we got on the way, enjoying the fact that there were no other cars parked. I'm not completely antisocial, but I don't really care for following the trail, nor was I sure of what was off-limits and what was public. The most candid pictures and experiences come off the beaten trail, as they say. Charlie bounded in front of me, always and afraid to take the lead. He's used to this, so I knew he wouldn't run off. In fact, he was the one to always make me feel better. Dogs have better senses than humans, right? After maybe 45 minutes and all the usual signs of human traffic disappeared, I was able to fully appreciate the quiet of nature. Charlie and I wandered while I made sure to keep an eye out for landmarks for an easy journey back. The last thing I needed was to get lost out there. I don't even think I told anyone I was going out there. If I were to fall into the Amite River or go into anaphylactic shock from some wastings, the only way my decaying body might be found was if someone happened upon my old Hyundai in the parking area. A few average pictures of nature later, Charlie stood with his nose pressed into the ground, letting out a few hushed growls. When I came closer, I realized the ground was littered with footprints. Bare, actually, and human. They didn't have a set path and almost made it look like a group of 30 or so people had been walking in erratic circles. I wondered briefly if we had taken a wrong turn and ended back towards the road, but I knew that was impossible. Maybe there had been some kind of music festival nearby and some drunk kids had gone this way. Whatever they were from, they were fresh, maybe not even more than a day or two old, seeing as it had rained just a couple of days before. Charlie seemed to have a different idea and bounded forward through the trees. I ran to keep up, but he only managed to stay in my line of vision. Eventually, he slowed down, apparently having lost interest in whatever scent he had been following. I sat on a fallen tree trunk, struggling to catch my breath. Kids, don't ever smoke. I swatted away mosquitoes, letting my heart rate return to normal. To my right, I noticed that I was in another small clearing, surrounded by tall stalks of bamboo. Literally hundreds. I didn't even know bamboo grew in Louisiana, but something was off. I hopped off the tree trunk and strided to one of the stalks. About three feet from the bottom, reddish-brown liquid had been smeared across the stalk. Looking around, it was on the stalk right next to it, and the one after that. I backed up and realized that the smearing was on all of the closest stalks, forming a circle around the clearing. It was like when a child drags their hand against the wall, leaving a trail of grease or finger paint. Was it blood? or just some sort of tree sap. I didn't stick around long enough to find out. Now that I think about it, I should have snapped a picture of that too. I recalled Charlie to my side, but he was too busy sniffing around the bamboo circle perimeter before galloping off again. He seemed pretty set on a path, so I followed him. By then, my arms and legs were speckled with mosquito bites, and I still couldn't shake that heavy air feeling. We'd turn back in an hour, I had decided. Before long, Charlie stopped and started to whimper. In between the thicket of trees and spider webs, I looked up and saw an old run-down house. It was small, but still large enough to rise over the tall underbrush. 
It almost seemed like it had sprouted up from the ground. The tree seemed a part of it. A canopy touched the roof, and a large branch was hanging off the side. The front door was closed and looked as if it had been that way for decades. Moss hung down over most of the windows. We crept around the back, staying a good few meters away. A steep downward slope didn't leave much room, however, and a thicket of moss and leaves covered almost the entirety of the rear. In the distance, I could hear the whooshing of the Amite River. Or was it the Comet? I wasn't sure. They come together somewhere in these woods. Me being me, I tried to take a few steps closer. I was itching to go inside, but then Charlie growled from behind me, so I stopped and looked back. He had his paws against a large oak tree, letting out a menacing growl. I looked up and saw the same reddish-brown liquid on the tree, in the form of a weird kind of pentagram, filled with symbols I had never seen before. Above it was a pair of needle-nose pliers crudely stabbed into the trunk. I pulled on Charlie's collar, leading him back around to the front. The door to the shack was wide open, though I was positive it had been closed not five minutes ago. It was so dark inside that I swear the sunlight was being sucked into the building. I knew I should be going, but I felt almost drawn to it, whether it was fear or curiosity rooting me in place. I still don't know. Then a loud crunching sound uttered from the woods behind the shack. I now noticed Charlie began whimpering and patting around me nervously, probably for a while. I crept closer, morbid curiosity getting the best of me. Despite the lack of lighting, I took a picture of the sloping woods. I didn't have time to examine it until later, as another loud crunch came from a different direction. This meant it was time to leave, and quickly. I called Charlie to my side, and we retreated, heading in the direction of the car as fast as possible without downright running. When we passed the strange footprints into the less-traveled part of the forest, I relaxed somewhat. Whoever had left that shack or been behind us hadn't decided to follow. Even though we slowed our pace to rest, we were moving more quickly than before. Charlie seemed bothered, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't unnerved myself. But doors don't open by themselves. The last time I checked, and whoever left managed to get out of sight noiselessly before we could even make it back round. Then there was that noise behind us. I mean, it was more than likely a deer or a fox looking for some food. But the circumstance felt odd. What animal hears and approaches a human with a canine companion? Charlie and I slowed to our normal walk once we reached the main trail. I was insanely curious as to what was in the shack, but it was slowly getting dark out. The trees definitely wouldn't let enough moonlight for me to even see inside. I would have to come back, maybe this time with more than a bottle of water and a pocket knife. Along the ground, I started noticing flowers, or flower petals, actually, rose petals. Fresh red rose petals were scattered along the trail like a wedding aisle. There weren't even footprints, just the bright red petals. It was at this point that I was positive that somebody was trying to scare me. The petals weren't there before. I was sure of it. I sidestepped most of them and broke through the trees into the cleared parking area. Charlie bound ahead of me and came to rest beside my car. Again, something wasn't quite right. A long white candle was lying next to my back tire. It had clearly been burned before. Black smoke marks and dried wax covered the sides. And upon further inspection, six more were placed in a circle around my car. Crap. I wasn't sure if this was a joke from some high school kids or people who lived in the area not wanting me there. But I was done. Dusk had turned into night and I wasn't going to wait around for whoever put the flower petals and candles there. I led Charlie into the car and then hopped in myself. Gravel went flying as I quickly backed out and into the road, and that feeling of dread that had been hanging around finally settled into my gut as I drove under the railroad bridge. Three dead cats hung by their tails from the edge of the overpass. I skidded to a halt about 30 feet from the bridge. My stomach was sick, but I wanted to get a picture of the bridge again. I grabbed my phone to get a shot and noticed something moving from my rearview mirror. Illuminated by my taillights, around a dozen or so figures emerged from the trees. All were hooded in black cloaks and looked to be holding hands. 
I shifted into park and started to roll down my window, but as soon as my foot was off the brake, they started walking forward as one. Charlie let out a small whine. I couldn't help it. I peeled out and sped down the twisting road, barely even stopping at the through's intersection. As soon as I was off the road, I let out a breath. Charlie's spirit seemed to lift and that heavy feeling was gone. I'm not sure what was going on back there, but it didn't seem too friendly. I guess that's what I get for not finding out a place before I go first. Maybe there are answers there. Now that I'm home, I can't stop thinking about the shack in the middle of the woods. What's inside? Why is it still there? Reckless or not, I've decided to go back. I won't have another chance until Wednesday. But that gives me time to prepare. Now that I've taken a few days to do a research, I have found out that Frenchtown Road has a few rather interesting urban legends attached to it. And one I found a witch threw a baby off the railroad bridge as some sort of sacrifice. In another, someone escaped a mental facility and the patients would wander around as hitchhikers. There's also stories about meth labs, swamp monsters resembling the Yeti. But the most interesting and most fitting seems to be the one about, you guessed it, devil worshippers. They supposedly cursed the bridge, making any car that stopped under it die for several seconds long enough to be overtaken by the cultists, witches, or whatever you want to call them. In short, this whole area of Greenwell Springs is a cesspool of weird supernatural elements, or possibly just weird people stumbling around. Who knows? Regardless, I wanted to go back, just a lot more prepared. I packed a serrated hunting knife, pepper spray, a brand new machete, and a leash in case I needed to direct Charlie away from danger. Now, I hooked up with a girl I'd met not recently. Her name was Penny. She was really nice in her 20s and she had pink hair. She seemed smart enough and had spunk. The only problem was that she couldn't necessarily defend herself from a squatter or any weird person. However, she did bring her own gear and seemed well prepared. A bit of conversation later and we were on the road to find out the truth and deliver some pictures. She sat in the back with Charlie the whole way, petting and cuddling him. He can be a ham, and I'd be lying if I said it didn't make me relax to see him approve of her. Pulling under the bridge once more was a strange feeling, in the sense that the atmosphere was exactly as heavy as before, maybe even more so. Glancing at Penny told me she could feel it too, but unlike me, she seemed more excited the closer we got. It was hard not to smile at her enthusiasm. It's been a while since I've had company on my trips that could talk back, and we were on to something big. It was obvious. Once past the railroad, I noted that the dead cats were gone. I guess whatever park management there was around here took care of it. We drove on, me taking care to park in between two other vehicles in the gravel, a baby blue SUV, and a muddy pickup. It afforded me some concealment, and I wasn't planning on taking any extra chances. It was now or never. Our first stop was a strange-looking statue stump next to the bridge. Only it wasn't there, just some dead grass and unearthed ground where it had been. There were footprints all around the area, but that wasn't unusual considering hikers do come here. They also didn't lean anywhere, but the usual trail taken by the park guides and certainly not the path I had found. Whatever it was, I don't think we were supposed to see it. So doesn't it bother you here that your name was spray-painted on the bridge? Penny asked. Her eyes darted above my head to stare at the railroad overpass. I didn't mention it before simply because I didn't think anything of it. I have a pretty common name. And there it was, messily painted on the side of the overpass. Even after everything, I don't know if it's significant or not. Not really. That bridge is old and I'm sure I'm not the first person to be exploring out here. Come on, the trail I started off on is this way, I replied. Thanks for letting me come along with you. I live for this kind of stuff. It's too bad that no one else could come with us, though. Isn't that right, Charlie? Penny bent down to let Charlie lick her face. It didn't make much of a difference, however. Charlie's huge, even for a Rottweiler. He probably could have stood on his hind legs and been taller. I briefly worried again about her size compared to an attacker, but felt better seeing her wooden baseball bat. It's no problem, I said. 
I normally like being alone, but not when I'm being targeted for some prank or satanic sacrifice. Might as well find out which one. She smiled at me then, brandishing her weapon like it was the bottom of the knife. I led Penny down one of the main trails. Luckily, she was sensibly dressed in jeans and some old combat boots. It wouldn't totally protect her from a snake or spider bite, but it would help. Hey, look. What? What are we going to do if there's some Heisenberg type of guy cooking up a big batch of meth? Or that there's some witch who's trying to lure us to the shack, but instead of candy, it's weird little gifts. I couldn't help but laugh. The air was thick with tension, yet the image of a green and warty witch leaving candles and rose petals lightened the mood. I think we... I paused. A branch cracked somewhere in front of us. Charlie's ear stiffened, obviously alerted to the same sound I was. In a split second, he tore off to the right, leaving the trail behind. We ran after him. I used the machete I brought to clear some of the underbrush and spiderwebs out of the way. But it was still hard. After a full minute of running... I caught up to Charlie, lying down in another small clearing. Penny lagged behind me, but my body had taken out the last of the stray branches in the way. Charlie, what is it? I crept closer and saw that he was gnawing on a large bone. And I'm not exactly a bone expert, but this was big. It had to be from another big dog or a horse or something. Ah, uh, Penny trudged up from behind me, sounding worried. I tried snatching the bone away, but Charlie let out a low growl and turned the other way. You really need to move. Look around you. I was still preoccupied with getting the bone out of my dog's mouth. There were small bits of metal or ligament on the sides, and I was terrified that it had been poison. Look, Penny finally yelled. I looked back. What? Look! I glanced at my surroundings. Nothing really out of the ordinary. It was a very small circular clearing. The underbrush had been cut down to nearly nothing, but that was when I noticed the candles. The whole clearing was lined with the same white candles as the last time, making a perfect circle around both Charlie and me. In a panic, I kicked the candles away, breaking the circle. The aftermath was incredible. My heart raced as I tried to make sense of everything. Charlie, chewing away at this mysterious bone, Penny gripping the handle of her bat so tightly that her knuckles were white, and me, standing in the broken circle of candles that someone had set there, seemingly for me to find. I didn't feel like I had broken any spells, nor was there anything in particular holding me to the spot. Besides my own nerves, at least, I felt that way until I glanced Penny's direction and saw her frozen expression. Look, look she stammered. Around us circled at the edges of the clearing were six or seven figures. They were all dressed in black robes and had no distinguishable features, aside from what was under the hoods. Each wore a mask made of the skull of some dog-like animal, fangs still attached. The skin and fur weren't fully stripped from the bone either. Grizzly bits of muscle and blood clung to more than one face. I don't know how long we stood there frozen. They didn't advance, didn't make any sound whatsoever, just watched us as we shuddered in fear. Charlie had long ago abandoned his bone and was growling fiercely at my side. It took all my strength to hold him back by the collar. After what felt like an eternity, the figures began to part at one side, creating an opening in their ranks. I didn't stop to think. I let Charlie go, commanding him to come and grab Penny by the arm to make our escape. We sprinted past, plowing deep into the woods without stopping. My breath grew haggard, but we crashed on. I couldn't get the image of those freaks out of my head. The skulls and the all-too-human eyes underneath. Why did they let us go? Eventually, the trees grew slightly less dense. Alarms were going off in my head like crazy. I knew where we were. Looming up ahead was the open-doored murder shack. Omnis as ever. Penny skidded to a halt when she saw where we were headed. Holy crap, that's it, isn't it? Please tell me you know how to get back to the car, she whispered. Penny, you stay here. The cultists are all out in the woods still. Even if they ran after us, we definitely have a huge lead. I'm going in. I need to see what's inside. No way. I'm coming with you. That's the whole reason I wanted to come along. I sighed. I didn't like the thought of putting her in more danger, but also not liking the odds of someone grabbing her outside without me knowing. I reluctantly agreed. 
Okay, but leash Charlie and hold on to him. There might be more inside. She did, and together we entered the devil's mouth. The inside of the shack was dark and dusty. If the outside was heavy, this place was downright suffocating. A stench instantly filled my nose. Something nearby was rotting. Penny switched on her flashlight and pointed to the nearest wall. Long tendrils of candle wax hung to the metal, like pale fingers itching to touch the ground. Rusty tools hung on a rack above a makeshift plywood table. At least I hoped that was rust. We crept down the small hallway to the right, then entered a much larger area. Charlie in the lead, black sheets hung down over most of the walls affixed with old bent nails. This effectively kept all lights from the windows from pouring in, though it also made it impossible to see without both Penny's flashlight and the flashlight app on my phone. The same wax from the entranceway covered the sheets. Hey, is that your wallet? Penny questioned. I followed the beam of her flashlight to a pile of chopped wood in a corner of the room. Sure enough, it was. My wallet lay closed and flat on top of the wood. They had found it. I set my phone down and opened the wallet to examine the contents. Nothing was taken, but I still planned to cancel my current card. By my side, Charlie let out a low whine. He was getting antsy. How long had we been inside? One minute? Five? I wasn't sure, but every second longer was risking our lives. I turned to Penny and whispered, Take Charlie and stand by the door. Yell if you see any of the black cloaks. She nodded and led my dog back to the open front door. His black fur was standing on end, yet he dutifully followed. With Penny on the lookout, I felt more confident to explore. I traipsed deeper into the shack, using my cell phone flashlight as guidance. The floor was stained concrete, but it was too dark to see the color. In the middle of the room was another plywood table, though much bigger than the one near the entrance. And like the floors, it was stained a dark brown. I ran my finger over the wood, not wet, so at least it wasn't fresh. On the table was a binding of rope that appeared to have been cut on one end. Next to it was an iron fireplace poker with something stuck on the end. I didn't examine it close enough to find out exactly what, however. Penny sneezed from the other side of the room. You okay, I whispered, yelled into the darkness. Yes, but we should probably hurry, she returned. Charlie whined, almost as if in agreement. For such a fierce-looking dog, he could be a baby sometimes. I continued on. At the furthest corner of the room, a small storage closet was partially opened. I used my foot to push it the rest of the way, revealing a shovel, a dirty axe, and a dozen long poles with hooks on the end. I shuddered, guessing what they could possibly be for. I backed up quickly, nearly tripping over a lump on the ground. I directed my flashlight downward, only to see the decaying body of a raccoon crawling with thick white maggots. It was strategically placed exactly in the middle of a pentagram made with candle wax. At least we found the source of the smell. I'd had enough. I turned to find a leave and that's when I saw it. In the opposite corner stood a seven-foot-tall cross. Only it wasn't a cross. It was badly constructed of two-by-fours, thick tree branches and cinder blocks. And nailed to the center was a picture of me. It was a year old right before I decided to get my life together. I was standing in my driveway smiling while holding a much smaller Charlie. I'd got him as a puppy when I decided to go ahead and just get my life going in another direction. This picture was impossible. No one was with me that day. Literally, no one. Penny, come hold your flashlight while I get some... Hey, they're coming! I ripped the picture from the nail that held it in place but dropped my phone in the process. Reaching down, I grabbed it but also felt something else. I didn't have time to look, but I took it anyway. I tore down the hallway to the door where Penny and Charlie were waiting. I could see two cloaked cultists emerging from the tree line at the far end of the shack. I grabbed the leash from Penny and ran, helping her along the way. Glancing back, I saw that they were slowly following us, like Jason and Friday the 13th or something. Passing by the bamboo thicket, I saw figures standing behind the tall stalks. It made no move to follow us, but I didn't stop the pace. Hey, stop, Penny panted. She was getting winded. We both were. I took her hand and slowed slightly. I could see the trail in the distance. We would make it if we found the trail. I just knew it. 
A whelp sounded from Charlie as his leash got caught on a low-hanging branch. Cracks and crunches were sounding from right behind us. I didn't have time to do anything else, so I grabbed my hunting knife and started slicing through his red leash. I had lost a machete somewhere while running or in the shack. Hurry, they're coming, I think. Got it. I cut her off, taking her hand again and running for the trail. We didn't stop the whole way. Charlie ran ahead of us and seeing that his black boy in the distance comforted me. If he was going to make it, so were we. And we did. My car was alone in the parking lot. My hands were shaking so bad that I had a hard time getting the key into the lock. Oh my God, look at your car. I ignored her, finally getting the doors unlocked. Get in, I ordered. It's blood. Your car is covered in blood. She was right. All along the bottom of my car was smeared blood. Bloody handprints were reaching up like the flames of hell, but we didn't have time to stop. I wrenched the door open and ushered Charlie in. Penny climbed in last, appearing to be in shock. We didn't talk until I pulled into the McDonald's where her car was waiting. Look, wait, what is that? What's what? I followed her gaze down to where I had hastily thrown my phone and the object I had grabbed from the shack. It was an old journal. And if I had any doubts about satanic cults or witchcraft, they're all gone now. It was written in a language that I don't know. Well, anyway, in short, I dropped Penny off and drove home. I don't think we'll be going back anytime soon. Once I got home, I took my hose and rinsed the blood off my car. I'm lucky that it's black, or for sure, I would have gotten pulled over while driving. What can I say? My curiosity has sated. I've never gone back and I have no plans to go back with or without Penny or anyone else. And just, just in case you ever think of maybe going down some lonely road to walk your dog, once you see something weird, you need to stop and go back, especially if you find that it's someplace close to the railroad tracks. The End well, guys, I hope you liked this story about some spooky happenings at Railroad Track. And thanks again for being part of my audience. You are all wonderful. Until the next time.